Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast of my freshly written speculative fiction and the often stranger-than-fiction stories behind it. This week, for our 122nd episode, the 12th of Season 2, A Season of Short Works, I've written another medieval magic fairy tale type story, with a lesson or two at the end that I'll leave up to you. It's set in Scotland, which, as some of you may know, is a country whose crest contains a mythical creature that has long been the favorite of elementary school-aged girls everywhere. The unicorn. The creature has appeared in literature since ancient Mesopotamia as a magical symbol of purity, innocence, and power. The ancient historian Theseus, in 400 BC, described unicorns as being horse-like, with a white body, purple head, blue eyes, and a red and black horn. Pretty colorful, don't you think? During his lifetime, Theseus traveled to Persia, and he picked up the belief there that unicorns came from India, a land that would have been completely alien to the ancient Greeks, and thus a potential place of magical thinking to explain the unexplainable. However, modern historians believe that both Theseus and the Italian explorer, Marco Polo, were actually seeing and describing a much more mundane animal, the rhinoceros. Polo described unicorns as being more like elephants, with the heads of wild boars, ugly brutes, as he called them, and said that they spent much of their time in mud and slime, hardly the pristine creatures that danced across so many medieval and renaissance tapestries, let alone adorn countless little girls' backpacks and notebooks nowadays. Some even claim that the unicorn appears in the Bible as a creature called the Riem, and unicorns have been symbolically interpreted in art as a number of religious figures, including Jesus and the Virgin Mary. Regardless, during the Middle Ages, unicorns were still considered by many to be real creatures, even though no physical evidence of them existed. Medieval Europeans believed them to be shy beasts, living deep in the woods to avoid human detection. To search for a unicorn was futile. One must stumble upon him, or uh, he must allow you to find him of his own accord. Because it was a creature that came to symbolize purity and grace, many believed that unicorns could only be seen by those who were equally pure and innocent, such as female virgins. Despite this, there are accounts of narwhal tusks being sold as unicorn horns in the Middle Ages by less-than-honest dealers in natural remedies. Since most medieval people would never have seen or heard of a narwhal, this would have been a fairly easy ruse for the traders to pull off. The idea was that the horns of unicorns had magical healing powers, that they could purify water and remove poisons from drinks, which, of course, made them sought after by medieval kings, who were always endangered by some jealous usurper or another. By the Renaissance, however, beliefs about unicorns had changed. Many thought that the wild, untamable unicorn would willingly heed the call of a damsel in distress, often laying its head in her lap to comfort her. Leonardo da Vinci wrote about this phenomenon, and many works of Renaissance art depict scenes of precisely that occurrence an innocent virgin with a unicorn lying its head in her lap. Regardless, as you might suppose, this gave rise to tales of women feigning their distress to attract unicorns so that hunters could capture them, 
in such artwork, unicorns were sometimes depicted as being held by chains of pure gold, which was supposed to be the only metal capable of restraining them. Today, outside of memes and children's toys, we see the unicorn on the crest of the nation of Scotland. Many think that the mythical creature was chosen because it was the natural enemy of the lion, which is the traditional symbol of England. If you want to learn more about unicorn history and how it relates to those two nations, I've included a link to a short video on the history of unicorns posted on the YouTube channel Legend of History. For whatever reasons that unicorn mythology seems to have evolved so much over time, I find it fascinating, and I've attempted to include as much of it as I can, along with a castle and a scheming stepmother, in this week's tale which is called Patience and the Unicorn, a short story by Vivian Catfield. Many centuries ago, when Scotland was still ruled by chieftains and not yet united under a king, there lived a chief named Angus, whose mother, a wealthy widow, wanted him very much to be the first one. After giving her son a piece of land as a part of his early inheritance that was surrounded on three sides by the North Sea, she paid a small fortune to have a castle built upon it in order to win the esteem and allegiance of the gentry nearby. A new village soon sprung up around the castle and became quite prosperous. Wanting to set his success in stone by producing an heir, Angus's mother decided that he should marry. However, much to the dismay of his mother who gave him the land, Angus was discontent with all of the ladies from noble families who were presented to him. Preferring to spend more time in the stables, for he was a great lover of horses, than in the court, Angus's attention was caught by the stable master's beautiful daughter, a kind and soft-spoken young lady with long, golden blonde hair named Orla. They were wed again to the disappointment of Angus's mother, who felt that he had married beneath his station. Nevertheless, their union was happy, but sadly brief. Orla died, giving birth to their first and only child. When the baby girl was presented to her father, Angus could not look at her. She reminded him too much of her mother, Orla. Devastated by grief, Angus took ill and lay in his bed for three days. His mother, anxious to see her son up and about, for she felt that a man grieving too long over any woman showed weakness, sent for the family priest to counsel him. The priest was old and hard of hearing. He had to use an ear trumpet to be able to hold a conversation. When the old father told Angus that the child needed a name in order to be properly christened, for it was the third day, Angus cried out, "'Lord, give me patience!' Having gone a bit soft in the head as well as slightly deaf, the old priest took this to mean Angus's choice for his daughter's name. And so, with Angus still abed in his mourning, the girl was christened Patience in his absence. In the years that followed, Angus came to believe that the accidental choice of his daughter's name was prophetic, for although he loved her dearly, she tried the patience of his mother at every turn. Refusing to sit quietly at home and learn music or poetry, Patience loved to play outdoors like a boy, and tagged along with her father whenever given the chance for traveling. Also, she took after her father's love of horses. She spent much of her time in the stables with her grandfather, Finn, grooming them, cleaning up after them, and secretly learning to ride them. 
her mother Orla's daughter, Patience was a kind and gentle girl, despite her wilder habits, and was known to save food from her own plate at dinners to give beggars and gypsies whom she passed on the streets the next day. By the time Patience was seven years old, Angus's mother had grown tired of waiting for him to choose a new bride. Not willing to accept Angus's nonchalance about his potential to produce a future male heir, she hounded him day and night until he finally agreed to propose to the daughter of another wealthy chieftain who lived nearby. Angus felt that the generosity of Maeve's dowry was intended to compensate for their daughter's shortcomings. Maeve was plain, with a long, dour horse's face, and given to peevishness and jealousy. Determined to spend as little time as possible around her, Angus sought to placate his mother in other ways. He amassed a small army and began expanding his land holdings by promising the neighboring villages protection. Despite his best efforts, a year after their marriage, Maeve bore their child, a son, whom she named Angus. To make sure that no one missed the beginning of their new dynasty, she immediately began calling him Angus the Younger. At last, with her future secured, Angus the Elder's mother was pleased. When Angus the Younger turned seven, his father decided it was time for him to learn to ride a horse. The younger Angus was, like his mother Maeve, a selfish and particular boy who insisted on learning to ride on a horse that no one else had ever ridden. Earlier that year, a colt had been born that was solid white. Patience, who was then 15, hoped that her father would give it to her as a wedding present. In her mind, she decided to name the colt Callum because he was the color of the doves that she hoped to have released at her wedding someday. There was talk of her beauty already in the surrounding counties, with many potential suitors already beginning to inquire of Angus the Elder when patients would be allowed to entertain thoughts of them. Her hair was long and golden blonde, just like her mother Orla's. Her father had asked that she never cut it in remembrance of her, and because she wanted her father to be happy, patients had obeyed. She wore her hair in a thick braid that encircled both sides of her head and trailed down to her ankles. Every evening she undid the plates and brushed it 100 strokes with a boar bristle brush until it shone like spun gold. Each morning, after the white colt was born, Patience woke with the sun and hurried out to feed him carrots. The colt became fond of her, although he was timid and shy with others. When Angus the Younger noticed the special attention that his sister paid to it, he demanded that colt, and only that one, would do for his first mount. When Finn, the stable master, tried to discourage him by saying that the colt was unbroken and skittish, the younger Angus wailed and called for his mother. At Maeve's insistence, Angus the Elder agreed to let the colt be broken, so that his only son could have his first choice of horses. Since Patience had made no mention of wanting the colt for her own, her father never knew. Once the colt was almost grown and Finn had trained it to saddle, he invited Angus the Younger for his first riding lesson. Heedless of the old stable master's warning to merely sit upon the colt's back and allow him to slowly canter around the meadow at his own pace, the younger Angus dug his heels into the colt's sides as soon as he was set upon him. 
The colt panicked and reared, tipping the younger Angus off in the tall grass. Unhurt, except for his pride, the boy wailed for his mother Maeve again to have the colt punished. At first, Finn refused, saying that a poor first experience could make the colt distrustful of his new master forever. However, at Maeve's insistence, Finn finally smacked the colt on the forehead with his riding crop. The colt shied, but shook it off. Dissatisfied with that punishment, Angus the Younger cried out again and threw a large stone that hit the colt square between the eyes. That was enough. The white colt cried out in fear and took off at a gallop. Before Finn could stop him, the white colt was up and over the pasture fence. Fast as a flash of lightning, he disappeared into the woods. The next morning, when Patience arrived to bring the colt his daily carrots, she found that he was missing. Inquiring from Finn what had happened, the stable master told her. Overcome with anger and fear that the colt might be lost or seriously injured, Patience ran into the woods after him. When she awoke and found her stepdaughter gone, Maeve laughed. Knowing that Angus the Elder grew more perturbed by the day at his namesake's poor behavior, Maeve decided to take advantage of the opportunity to cast her husband's favored daughter in a bad light. Maeve ordered the gate and all doors of the castle closed after telling the guards a lie, that Patience had run away in the night, possibly with a caravan of gypsies. Knowing that the girl was impulsive and had more than the usual concern for such people, the guards chose to believe Maeve. They closed the gates. Out in the forest, Patience ran until the slippers she wore were in tatters. However, worry of the poor, lost white colt forced her to push on. Callum! Callum! Patience's voice rang out through the gathering darkness as she tried calling the colt by the name she wished she'd been able to bestow upon him. A thick fog began to roll in, and Patience was forced to sit down at last, because she was unable to see a foot in front of her face. Lying down on her cloak in the moss by a stream, Patience cried herself to sleep, exhausted. She was awakened just before daybreak by something tickling her aching feet. Callum! Patience exclaimed as the colt knelt down beside her. Oh, you're hurt, she said, touching the hard knot on the colt's forehead. A thin line of dried blood trickled down the colt's blazing white nose. Wincing at her own swollen and bloody feet, Patience crept over to the stream and wet the hem of her green velvet gown. Her long golden braid also fell over her shoulder into the water. Just as she was about to use the gown to wipe the blood off the colt's face, she remembered her father scolding her for ruining a different gown the week before. Instead, she cleaned the colt's wound with a soft, thick rope of her golden hair. She could always wash that away, Patience reasoned. As she did so, Patience could feel the knot on the colt's forehead beginning to rise and grow harder. Within moments, a bony point broke through the skin. A shudder ran over the colt's body, and it made a low, whinnying moan as more blood poured down his face. Terrified that the colt was dying, Patience forgot about her father's scolding and ran back to the stream to soak the long sleeves of her gown in the stream. Then she rushed to continue to swab blood out of the colt's eyes as the point became longer and longer, growing at last into a horn. Sighing with relief, 
The tension in the colt's neck released, and he laid his head down in Patience's lap. Running her fingers along the colt's horn, Patience felt a warm, tingling sensation begin to move up her arm and then down the length of her body to her feet. As she stared at them, the many cuts on her soles and ankles healed over, and the dried blood turned from dark red to brown, then flaked away. Wiggling her toes, Patience found that her feet were no longer sore or bruised. Instead, they were completely healed over. Callum, Patience said, stroking the cold's long, shining nose. You healed me. Brushing the leaves off her cloak, Patience placed it over Callum's back. Then she returned to the stream. Although she was able to wash her hair and wring it mostly dry as she remade the plate, the green velvet gown sleeves remained stained. Not with the red color of blood, but with an oily, shining, iridescent film that Patience thought most curious. Returning to the colt, she found him standing up. The cloak over his back was lumpy. When Patience pulled it off, she gasped. The colt had grown a large pair of white wings that ran the length of his body. Noticing her staring at him in astonishment, the colt raised and flexed his wings. In the morning light, their shiny feathers cast a cascade of rainbows shimmering across the forest floor. Callum, you are so beautiful, Patience whispered, moved to tears once more as she lay her own cheek against his soft white one. I cannot take you back to the castle and allow my little brother to mistreat you so poorly again. Stay here in the forest, and I will return with some food for you and me. Wrapping her thicker wool cloak over the colt once more, Patience left the forest and walked barefoot back to the castle. When she arrived, the guards refused to allow her entrance. Instead, they summoned Maeve who called down to Patience for all to hear from the tall parapet above the gate that her father thought she had run off with a band of gypsies, and that he felt so disgraced by her actions that he refused to see her. Devastated at the thought of displeasing her father, Patience ran away back into the forest without even asking for any food. That evening, when Angus the Elder returned to the castle with a handsome young man named Errol, whom he hoped that Patience would take a shine to as her first suitor, Maeve told him the same lie that she'd told the guards. Heartbroken, the older Angus made an excuse to Errol, who, unbeknownst to him, had been listening at the door to Maeve's falsehoods, that Patience would not be able to see him because she was not feeling well. However, the ruse was useless. Within days, it was all over the county that Angus the Elder's daughter had run away with the gypsies and that his son was the only child left to him. Maeve could not have been more pleased. Back in the forest, Patience wondered what she should do. At last, she decided she should go to Edinburgh, to the home of her father's physician. Throughout her childhood and even to the present day, her father suffered occasional bouts of melancholia and had to be bled. If anyone would know why a colt had suddenly sprouted wings and a horn in the middle of his head with healing properties, it would certainly be a learned doctor of the physical form, Patience reasoned. Would you allow me to ride on your back? Patience asked Callum. It's a very long way to Edinburgh, and I have no shoes. 
The horse made not a sound, but bent to one knee, bowing his head to her so that the tip of his horn almost touched the ground. Patience slipped one leg across his back, tucking her knees softly but firmly beneath the grooves where his wings attached. Still, as Callum stood, Patience felt herself sliding off. She needed a bridle of some kind, but having none, she improvised. Carefully, she wrapped the long braid of her hair around the colt's neck, leaving a little slack so that she could still turn her head and hold the middle and ends of it before her like a rein. Stepping out into a clearing, Callum eased into a gallop, then a run. Before Patience knew what was happening, they were streaking southward across the sky. Touching down at the home of the physician, Patience knocked on the door. A heavy-set, bent-backed elderly woman answered with a broom in her hand. Glancing down judgmentally at Patience's dirty dress and cloak, she started to shut the door. Spying Callum, she stopped. Is that? She paused in disbelief. No, it can't be. The old woman rubbed her eyes as Callum put his nose over the threshold. The old housekeeper instinctively reached out to touch his horn. Oh, the housekeeper exclaimed in surprise. Straightening her back gave off a series of loud cracks that sounded like walnut shells breaking against one another. Stretching her arms over her head, the old woman seemed to be at least an inch or two taller. Blessed be! She sighed. My back hasn't felt so good in years. Why don't you come inside and wait for the doctor? We have ale, cheese, and I just made a fresh loaf of bread. Relieved and suddenly realizing that she was starving, Patience hurried inside. Callum followed, and the normally fastidious housekeeper said nothing, as he stood calmly munching oats and carrots from a wooden bowl on the table, with a trail of muddy hoof prints left behind. "'What is the meaning of this?' the physician blustered, entering the low front door of his home and nearly walking straight into Callum's swishing tail. "'Why is that horse in the middle of my—' The physician trailed off as Callum turned his head to look over his shoulder, and the doctor caught sight of his horn and wings. The physician squinted, as if he didn't believe his eyes. Then, as if being awakened from a strange dream, he startled— and grabbed for the colt's mane. Callum reared back and pawed at the air in front of him. Do either of you know what this is? The physician yelled from beneath the relative safety of a nearby table. That horn is worth... He seemed unable to state such an enormous sum, so he settled for a comparison instead. That horn could buy a king. I must have it. Edith, where is my saw? Whether he understood the physician's meaning or could merely sense the danger, Callum's eyes rolled back in his head and he barreled out the door with patients running after him, calling, Wait! Wait! A hundred yards away, Callum stopped and pawed the ground, clearly angry. Easy, easy boy, patients whispered. I won't let the doctor take your horn, but we must find somewhere that you won't be seen. At least until we're ready, where should we go? Again, Callum pawed the ground, and this time he knelt down so that Patience could get onto his back. She hoped that he knew where he was going as they climbed higher and higher again into the sky. 
When they finally touched down, it was nighttime. They were once more on the coast, but there was no shoreline that Patience recognized. The mouth of a large cave before her, Patience felt uneasy about entering it. Then she began to hear voices coming from inside and noticed the gleam of a small fire. Calling out to them, Patience heard footsteps coming closer. She did not dismount, lest whomever or whatever emerged wasn't friendly. Callum seemed unfazed by the sounds, though, and stood shifting his weight to keep his balance on the wet stones. Oi! What have we here? A young man with dark curly hair said as he emerged from the cave. I'm Patience, she replied, trying not to let her voice quiver. She was slightly afraid, even though this fellow was quite handsome. Lately of Dun Castle, north of Aberdeen. Who are you? We're the stewards, an older man replied, as he limped out of the darkness carrying a long walking stick. Lately of everywhere. Traveling folk. We put on shows, do some workings in tin. The usual. He paused, studying Callum. But that whom you have there is very unusual. He turned to the younger man beside him and pointed with his thumb. See? Not everything I tell you is a fairy tale. Then he beckoned for Patience to come inside and get out of the damp. Without any prodding, Callum followed. Once they were seated around the fire and food passed around to man and beast alike, the old man asked if he could touch Callum's horn. The colt side-eyed him a bit, then relaxed. Sweeping his gnarled fingers over the length of the horn, then tracing along the side of his jaw, the old man sighed. He stretched his legs out toward the fire and gently bent his knees one at a time close to his chest. They popped loudly like snapping twigs. Then he opened the fingers of each hand wide, then closed them. Patience heard every knuckle crack. Ugh, he said at last. That's much better. Last time I saw one, I was too young to know what it meant to be in pain. But now, he ran his hand lovingly over Callum's mane and down the colt's neck. Now I know, and I appreciate your allowing me to relieve it. Thank you. How does it work? Patience asked. No one knows, the old man replied. He's just a unicorn. It's magic. For the next few years, Patience traveled with the stewards. Together, they devised a scheme to hide Callum in plain sight as part of their act. Covering his horn with a long, bright, feathered headdress and bells, and putting a sweep-sided, ornately woven cape over his wings allowed Callum to pass for any elaborately dressed traveler's horse. Over time, word spread about the amazing white stallion, led by a beautiful girl with a golden bridle, who could cure anyone's ills just by touching them. They dressed patients like a medium, and taught her to pretend to diagnose people's ailments. Then, when they were blindfolded, she led them to touch Callum's horn. For poor people who were really in need, they did it for free. But for rich people, <laughs> they made them pay through the nose. Soon, Patience and the whole band of travelers with the stewards were quite wealthy, 
and able to put on very elaborate shows, not just at fairs, but also in the best castle halls across the countryside for private audiences who'd requested their performances. By the time word spread to Angus the Elder of Dun Castle about such miracles, Patience's father was in ill health, taken to drink after the loss of his daughter, and even more after his mother's death. Angus ended most of his nights in a fog of ale. Too drunk to notice what was happening, the elder Angus never noticed the drop or two of poison that Knave let fall in his cup each evening, once she could tell that he was past the point of recognition. His memory began to fail him, and though he was not even far into middle age, his muscles became slack and his face pale. Meanwhile, his son, Angus the Younger, grew rounder and more petulant by the day. Refusing to work, he spent his days lazing around the pub, gambling and boasting. Unable to ride because of his size and certainly unwilling to walk, he had a servant with a two-horse cart pull him almost everywhere he went. Nevertheless, every now and then, Angus the Elder would get maudlin, and he'd make some sort of vow to himself to live better and improve his health. It was in one of these such episodes that he requested the fabulous traveling stewards, as they were by then known, to perform at the castle and to bring their miracle healing horse and maiden with them. If time had made Angus the Elder weaker, it had also served to make his wife Maeve's paranoia about being usurped stronger. Reasoning that she would be the de facto owner of Duncastle in the event of her husband's death, at least until Angus the Younger came of age, Maeve relished the idea of her husband's passing, especially since her own son, for whom she would technically serve as guardian, had no interest in operations of the estate or village. Through the guise of his ownership, Maeve could finally have what she wanted, the ability to rule over the world that Angus the Elder had created for his son without either one of them. Suspicious, though, of who the girl might actually be, Maeve decided to alter her husband's plans. As always, she began by leading him to believe that her idea had been his own. Why should we pay for only one performance? Maeve wheedled. If you feel certain enough that this horned donkey has the power to heal, why don't we just buy it and keep it for ourselves? Saw off his horn and make a cup out of it. I've heard that drinking from such a cup every day has the power to cure anything. Angus the Elder scoffed. If that horse really could work miracles, then I'm sure those gypsies would never sell it. The creature is their fortune. Maeve narrowed her crooked eyes. Then perhaps we don't buy it then. Perhaps we just take it. You're close friends with the sheriff, are you not? And they're gypsies. I'm sure they've done something wrong. Not paying their taxes as they move from place to place, perhaps? That would be an easy excuse to seize their property. Her husband nodded and reached for his flag and a veil as Maeve finished unveiling her plan. I've heard that the girl controls the animal with a golden bridle. What if we hired them to the castle for a performance first with a healing ritual to follow? The sheriff and his men can be among the crowd, waiting for the right moment. Once they've demonstrated whether the horse can work his magic or not, we throw the golden lasso over him, claim him as confiscated property for taxes, and then have the sheriff's men run them out of the castle. 
But what if the people rebel? Angus replied, turning his head to burp and yawn. Maeve tipped two drops of poison into his glass so swiftly she was like a magician. No one's going to stick up for gypsies, Maeve smirked. Besides, even if they do, what is the likelihood that any of them could produce evidence of having paid their taxes in this county and for this year? Slim, I would wager, Maeve said, looking down her long, pointed nose at her husband, who slumped somewhere between waking and sleeping in his chair. That's what I thought, Maeve replied to the air. Glad you agree with me. As for who the final owner of this supposed miracle horse might be, Maeve thought to herself, as she summoned a pair of Angus's servants to carry him off to bed. If there's actually anything to him at all, I want to be the one left holding the golden lasso. Several months later, when fall hung crisp in the air, the traveling stewards found themselves on the road to Duncastle. Maeve's scheming about how to gain permanent control of the horse grew more intricate and elaborate by the day. After she determined, through mining everyone she knew for several counties around, that the girl with the miraculous horse simply must be patient, she decided that an even better plan would be to capture the horse before it reached the Elder Angus at all, mostly because if he were cured somehow by the animal, then she'd have to begin her slow poisoning scheme all over again. And Maeve hated to waste that much time and effort. Having heard from a local huntsman about the legend, which claimed the girl's suffering and sorrow were what initially drew the unicorn to her, Maeve decided to recreate a similar scene, casting herself as the melancholy maiden. Taking one of Patience's old dresses in her spare cloak, which Angus the Elder could not, even in his fog of constant inebriation, be made to part with, Maeve dressed like her stepdaughter and went into the forest. Planting herself on the ground within plain sight and hearing of the road to the castle, Make began heaving fake sobs. Peering through her fingers, she glimpsed the white horse pause and prick up its ears. Then, as she saw it coming towards her, Maeve heard the unmistakable voice of Patience calling out for him to stop. As soon as Callum stepped into the grove, however, Maeve jumped up and threw the heavy lasso made of gold links over his head, jerking it tight around his neck. The unicorn bucked and struggled, but the sheriff's men swarmed around him, throwing second, third, and fourth heavy chains around his neck. Callum staggered, fell gasping, and passed out. They loaded him onto a wagon, and the sheriff himself trotted over on his own bay horse to inform the stewards and patients that the animal had been seized for taxes. Maeve enjoyed every moment of it. Her only regret was that she hadn't waited just a little longer. If she'd lured the unicorn out into the meadow, she'd have had better lighting with which to view the terrified expression on Patience's face. That evening at the castle, Angus the Elder was already too drunk to remember that the play-acting was supposed to be followed by a touch-healing interaction with the unicorn. Still, when Maeve wheeled the animal in, the other chains had been removed in the interest of creating a more picturesque performance. Even though she thought the beast was a fake, Maeve didn't want the local gentry in attendance to think that she was some kind of cretin. 
not wanting to give Maeve any more chances. Patience skipped the usual monologue with which she began her shows and led Callum directly up to her father's throne. Placing his hand on the unicorn's horn, Angus the Elder's eyes unclouded. He vomited a pile of black bile violently up onto the floor and stared at it for a moment. Then he turned to look accusingly at Maeve, who cringed. They both knew what kind of expulsion that resulted from. Then Angus turned to face Patience. Daughter? he asked in disbelief. Have you returned to us at last? This was not part of Maeve's plan. Leaping up from her seat as second to the throne, Maeve snarled and made a dive for Patience. However, she was intercepted by her husband and held back. The rest was a blur as Patience scrambled onto Callum's back. She used the pair of tin cutters that Old Man Stewart had given her to cut the gold-linked lasso off from around Callum's neck, and it fell to the floor. As the unicorn beat its wings to rise above the floor of the Great Hall, the younger Angus, in an unusual burst of energy, charged forward with his knife in hand and stabbed his father in the back. Maeve screamed as his grip on her loosened, and the elder Angus fell to the floor. Patience, Angus the elder whispered. Blood bubbled out of his mouth as he watched his daughter fly out of the Great Hall on the back of the unicorn. Lord, that was my patience. Then he was gone. The castle of Angus the Elder fell into ruin in the years that followed. There was some amount of talk and scandal following the trial and hanging of both mother and son for murder, but it was soon forgotten. The traveling stewards, plus old Finn the stablemaster, who joined up with them to care for their horses after the elder Angus's death and sale of his lands, eventually settled down and founded a house of their own. Perhaps you've heard of them. Patience and Callum retired from public life to the Isle of Skye. To this day, people still wander up those craggy cliffs and sea caves, hoping to see a unicorn. They seem disappointed when one doesn't materialize. They needn't worry. One will eventually appear. It just takes patience. This is the end of the short story, Patience and the Unicorn, by Vivian Catfield. Be sure to tune in next week for another new story here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield, reminding you to remain ever watchful, because you never can tell. Someone, or something, somewhere out there, just might be watching you.